This presentation is from UX Australia 2016, held in Melbourne. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. All right, so I'm going to first apologise again to Andrew for uh, mucking up the schedule and not having him on any printed material, but that doesn't mean he's going to be any less good. And it means that if you didn't know this was on, it's a good secret surprise. It's going to be excellent. So Andrew's from Accenture. His colleague Tim was meant to be with him, but Tim is super sick. So Andrew's going to play two parts today. Are you going to do it? I'm going to be doubly as engaging, hopefully, with Tim not being here. Excellent. So thank, you. thank you very much. Okay. So thank you, everyone, who's kind of stayed around this afternoon for this session, Designing for Real World Participation and, and Social Interaction. Uh, my name's Andrew Barry. I'm an Interaction Design Lead with the team in Fjord. Um, I'm currently based in Sydney, but I'm actually going to return soon to Melbourne later on in the year, which I'm quite excited by. As Donna mentioned, I was going to be joined by my counterpart, Tim Boosing, today, but unfortunately, he's incredibly sick and, uh, and in bed. So, like I said, I will be running solo this afternoon. So, just a quick level check, I guess, and, and setting the agenda for my talk this afternoon. What do we mean by real-world participation and social interaction? Well, when I say that, I mean design that facilitates collaboration between people in physical space via digital means. So real people, real space, mediated by technology in some way. On a tactical level, and I'm going to go through this via a couple of case studies of things that I've been actively involved in designing over the last kind of four or five years of my career. But we're going to be looking at technologies that specifically enable uh, multi-user experiences and interactions. So, Things like this example here of a company that I used to work for, Lightwell, up in Sydney, um, and the work that they did for the National Museum of Australia with large-scale multi-touch interactives, uh, some interactive projections, nearables, wearables, camera tracking, blob detection, any of those technologies that allow multiple people to use an interface at the one time. I'm also going to be talking specifically about interfaces that encourage social engagement and play. So things that are specifically designed so that they enable chance encounters between human beings, uh, potential shared learning opportunities, and once again, multiple people playing in real time. So why is it useful to talk about this now? Why is it useful to talk about this at a UX conference in, in front of a whole bunch of designers in front of me? Since drafting this, this presentation to now, this happened, Pokemon Go. So we're currently living in a time in which we have blurring of digital and physical boundaries in a way that I'd probably argue that we never have before. With something like Pokemon Go, arguably we've, we've finally got a, you know, a mass market use case for, for AR. We have people wandering around parks looking for Pikachus. Uh, and we have people for the first time, designers, thinking about what the etiquette is, is around this. So for, for this type of work, it's a really fundamentally interesting time. We're also living in a time in which is uh, zero UI and ubiquitous computing and embedded technologies are becoming more and more prevalent. Um, and I'd say that these things are becoming more prevalent in many environments and many spheres. So be that the workplace or in, in the case there of the Alexa, also potentially in the home. And these spaces in which these technologies at the moment are still very much designed on a one-for-one -one basis, but not necessarily designed for how we engage people within a group scenario. So, what do I know, and what have I been involved in within this, within this area? So, a couple of years back, um, I was lucky enough to, um, to work with AMP um, on a project which was essentially AMP trying to redefine um, financial planning and financial planning services. Um, 
And I, I don't know how many of you have actually been to a financial planner before, a traditional financial planner. Quick raise of hands. Has anyone gone to see a financial planner? Wow, actually a fair few of you have gone to see a financial planner. Okay, so we all know how that, that, that system works. You get together a series of materials and some background information on yourself. You take that content through to a financial planner. You, you investigate that together. And you basically come up with a roadmap for your financial affairs. What AMP wanted to do is change that equation. So they wanted to build a series of online tools. So you would get some of that information out via some onboarding. And then they would take you into a physical space and using two very large um, uh, installations, have a mediated conversation with a financial planner on the, f on the fly in real time, which was more so a goals-based um, uh, so goals way of thinking about your financial affairs. So I helped design something that looks like this. So this is what we called the What If Wall Interactive. Uh, it's a five by two meter uh, multi-touch interface. Um, it, uh, it enables multi-touch across the entire surface at, at any given point in time. Um, it's the first thing that you see when you enter what is the concept, what is called the concept store down at Circular Key. Um, and I, think, I actually think that AMP are gonna be opening this up for the first time later on uh, this year. Um, so in terms of what the interface actually does, um, based on the onboarding that you go through on the web, each of these separate facets that we're looking at at the moment, each of those are a goal, and the goals are prioritized and cluster relative to the information that you've already given um, AMP via the, the web onboarding. So what does it do? Simple tool for selecting and prioritizing life goals, designed to facilitate conversation between customers and a financial advisor in real time, full IR-based uh, multi-touch interface, and it's massive. So what did I learn in, in developing this? And just to give you an idea of how long something like this takes to develop and, and work through um, with AMP, the, the, the design process all up was uh, about 12 months or so, and we did about six months or so very intensive user testing from very kind of lo-fi prototyping and kind of more informal testing in the studio through to doing pizza sessions with different clients and kind of friends of, friends of AMP employees um, during the evenings through to other forms of usability testing as well. And the first key thing that I learned is that we need to be contextually aware. Don't assume that people want their inputs from one context shared in another. And this is incredibly important when it comes to, to financial inputs. But that, uh, that scenario that I showed you just before where you have two people facing this massive uh, interactive experience, they're facilitated with a financial advisor. We tested quite carefully the financial advisor having all of this quite detailed information about me as, they, as you come in, almost like a concierge or a mediated experience. And the, 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 the responses to this testing was just absolutely terrible. People didn't want necessarily their first interaction with this person to be, oh great, I did this web onboarding experience and now you know that I'm 38 and I have a particular financial, you know, I earn a certain amount of money, et cetera, et cetera. Test performance anxieties carefully, especially with males. This is probably no surprise to all of the females in the audience here. But it was incredibly surprising to me, as you saw before with the, with the shot of what we're looking at, um, this experience was designed not only for single person use and also with a financial advisor in the room, but it was also designed for couples. In fact, this was a, a key target audience. So a husband and wife, boyfriend and girlfriend could go through this experience together, stand by, side by side and use this. 
And through the initial testing, we found that women responded incredibly well to it, and guys hated it. <laughs> the response was absolutely terrible. And so, so we, we obviously asked a lot of whys, and we tried to interrogate this further. And, and, and basically, the, the feedback that we got was men still love to master what they think is their technical domain. So there was this embarrassment level, and there was this very kind of clear threshold there that was very hard to overcome. Defaulted to well state is the best opportunity for educating your user. What we did with the, the what if wall in particular was we did a lot of work specifically around the first point of interaction with this interface. Um, what we did is we actually recorded the interface in play to use that as a way to pre-hint to the user that this is the way that it was going to be used. Jumping to somewhere very different now, um, and another case study of something I've worked on. Uh, a couple of years ago, I worked with the Museum of Victoria um, on an interactive experience called Super Future U um, at ScienceWorks. Um, it was developed specifically for the Think Ahead exhibition, um, which is over in the ScienceWorks campus. And it's a permanent exhibition that's looking at future thinking technologies and changes in technologies. And the experience looks something like this. It's specifically designed, um, it's that what we're looking at there is a 65-inch massive um, LCD screen. Um, you're looking, it's an experience that is designed to give kids a really fun and engaging way to understand body augmentations or potential body augmentations. So crazy things like rocket legs and antennae, um, particular, like uh, in, embedded technologies of, of various degrees. And what it's doing from a, from a technology perspective, there's a high-definition camera that is, is uh, um, basically grabbing the image of that child in real time. It's using a Kinect camera to do uh, skeleton tracking, so to actually understand and map the geometry of the body. And then what we're doing is mapping 3D models onto areas of the body, once again, in real time. Um, we also developed the, the UI for this so that it's actually using the height as well to, to basically understand and snap around the body so that it would work for incredibly small kids, tall kids, and also people in wheelchairs. We also developed this game as well, which happened at the end of the experience so that kids could try out their new body augmentations, smack a few pieces of geometry. Um, and what we're also doing on the fly is grabbing a PNG sequence that we could then convert into a GIF that would then be available at the end of the experience on the reverse side of this pod so that they could send themselves a really fun digital takeaway. And if you're interested, this is what the GIF looked like at the end of the experience. So once again, so what does it do? It's AR-based, uses a Kinect camera, and it's applying 3D models to the human body in real time. What did I learn? Well, the key thing that I learned from doing this is that kids are brutal in a really great way. Has anyone, once again, a quick show of hands, has anyone designed a product specifically for children? How did you find the user testing for that? Exactly, so the thing that I found about working with children and the thing that I still love about it and I love any opportunity to work with groups of kids is that kids are incredibly honest. They also don't come preloaded with too many biases. Um, and unlike traditional UX usability um, kind of scenarios where we as UXs might craft a well-crafted script and we move a user through these to understand certain behaviors or test certain functionality, kids, from my experience, just don't play ball with that, <laughs> which allows you to test, especially when it comes to edge cases around functionality, very, very, very quickly. So I think they're fantastic usability testers. 
If you're designing a social experience, test it as a social experience. This should be a, a little bit of a no-brainer, but especially in the work that I've done in the museum um, sector and within cultural spaces and in public spaces, this is incredibly important if what you're trying to do is design something that will be um, engaged with and, and used by multi-generational audiences. So in the case of something like Super Future with Science Works, even though we're still designing that for kids, we're also designing that for you know, the parents of those children, and we're also designing those things for the grandparents of those children. So we tried to do a lot of testing around that in a multi-generational way. Designers need to sweat the system performance. Um, in the case of Super Future U, I, I guess you can kind of imagine there's a lot of technical smarts going on behind the scenes and a lot of moving parts. Um, and one thing that we found when we first started developing something like Super Future U, where you're making a recording of the body in real time that is then being transcoded into a GIF that then needs to make it across onto a touchscreen at the back of this experience, is that it's incredibly easy to get the timing of all of this wrong. And in fact, sometimes going too fast is the wrong way with this. Um, because you know we take a certain amount of time to then make it through this touchscreen, there are dwell times. Okay, so more broadly speaking, what else can we learn by doing this type of work? This is my favorite topic at the moment. Paper prototypes can be a risky abstraction start designing in code. Now, this is not a call for everyone to put down their post-it notes and their whiteboards and their sketch art boards and pick up HTML and CSS all of a sudden. Um, but what it is, I guess, is a call for designers to think really carefully about when is the best use of paper prototyping and when is the best use of what I call tangible prototyping. And my argument is that when it comes to designing some of these experiences like this, this is one of the original uh, early paper prototypes of the, um, the waterfall experience, is that there's only so much you can learn, especially with an interactive that is proposing interaction patterns that people haven't used before. You know, there, there are similarities, and there are things that we might understand maybe from a tablet application or some, something else in, in mobility, but there's only so far you can actually test behavior with a paper prototype. They're fantastic for quickly sense-checking kind of uh, scale and feasibility with, with a client, but that's, that's about as far as it goes. If you want to design for people to participate and to create social engagement, you need to design for the spectator. I'm guessing that most people in the room have seen this before. Everyone knows the famous Nielsen Norman Group um, findings on participation equality, um, or basically inequality. Um, uh, I, I think that this is actually kind of quite a damning pyra uh, pyramid in many ways, but it's, it's an example, I guess, of how designing for the web is very, very different from designing for group or social participation. So on the web, and as the Nielsen group found within, um, uh, within um, kind of organizations online, you have 1% heavy contributors, so basically 1% technorati who kind of, I guess, have most of the bandwidth in that, in that environment, 9% intermittent contributors, so people like, say, on YouTube who might like something or who might curate content, but they're not a, an active voice within that space. And then you have 90% workers, so people who are totally passive and who are never going to get involved. From my experience doing things like designing large-scale you know, uh, interactives for, for museums and for, for experiences that are specifically about multi-people uh, person use, is that the, the ratios on the pyramid are actually a, a little bit nicer. 
Um, you end up with something like, a, uh, at the top of the pyramid, you end up with 10% active participants. I think this is probably because when you're designing for physical space and you can actually see stuff, the value proposition is probably clearer to the user, so you have more people who want to jump in and actually play and work. You still have 60% or so lurkers, so people who are just never going to engage with what you do, no matter how you design it. But the most useful and probably the most interesting um, area within this is, is that middle band. And that's the 30% active spectators or the people who are potentially going to be engaged. So you have a much greater middle band there and a much higher propensity to take those people into being active or engaged um, participants. We need to keep learning from other design disciplines. This is, this is something that uh, I think a lot about. Um, I've been lucky enough through this work to have worked with a, a, an incredibly diverse range of different designers, so architects and interior designers, industrial designers, etc. cetera. Um, and the thing that I've realized from my time doing this is that a lot of those disciplines already have incredibly sophisticated ways of thinking about what humans do in space and their behaviors, and very in, in particular, um, the way that they work with time and space. And I think this is a great, uh, this is a great diagram by the, the architectural firm Dilla Scafodio and Renfro for some work that they were doing for Penn Station. I just think it's a, a great example of the way that, that architects and interior designers already kind of quite clearly articulate the types of things that we as UXers can sometimes be looking at through journey maps and, and blueprints, et cetera. And my last point, experimental in R&D today, industrialized tomorrow. So that background image is actually a prototype of a VR headset or something that's close to an Oculus Rift from NASA. And it was actually developed in, that's 1983 <laughs> we're looking at there. So in terms of VR to kind of get from being this prototype through to you know, the hottest trend in tech, as everyone's saying it is right now, you know, 20 or 30 years or so. But what I found in the last five to 10 years, I guess, of my, my experience working in this area is that the line or the time between very experimental and esoteric technologies um, and the mass market is, is basically doing this, this more and more. Some of the core technology and stuff that I was doing for you know, science works in, you know, for an experimental interactive are now being used by Westfield to you know, track uh, people's number plates and give them access to shopping centers and what have you. And so I guess that um, my, within this context, I guess my challenge to the room today is that as designers, I think that now is the time in which we fundamentally have to, uh, to get involved in interrogating these technologies and experimenting with these technologies more to ensure that in the future we play a really active role in making social and inclusive and participatory experiences. That's it for me. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, questions for Andrew? Any questions? Um, great talk, thank you. Um, any advice on uh, for traditional UX folks on how to transfer or kind of migrate more to what you do? <laughs> yeah. yeah, really, really, really great question. Um, I mean, in terms of transferring just like on a, on a on more of a kind of like a pragmatic job level, I guess. Um, I mean, for me personally, my, my background was actually working on the other side of the table, yeah? So as an experienced designer, I actually used to work for, for uh, Melbourne Museum. I worked then for the Australian Centre for the Moving Image in Federation Square. 
before going and working for a very small interaction design company called Lightwell, who specifically designs uh, you know, these types of experiences for, uh, for museums, galleries, cultural spaces, and the cultural sector. Uh, in terms of my advice for kind of UXs, I guess, who are for, for looking for more of these avenues, I, I personally see that a lot of the time that that comes with having slightly more kind of lateral and kind of pushing it conversations actually with our clients or the people that we're working with within the companies in which we work. Um, you know, obviously, I, like, like I said at the start, I work for Fjord, which is a global service design organization that works under the umbrella of this massive company called Accenture. And half the time, it's actually only by having uh, kind of uh, conversations where we try and push the gauntlet just that little bit further in terms of the tech that we're working with, that we create opportunities ourselves to, to, to get to play in that area, I guess. Does that kind of answer your question? Cheers. All right, thank you very much. Cool. That was great. Thanks, guys. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.